good afternoon, Isle of Faces listeners. You are listening to Sir Buckley here in middle of summer England, which of course means rainy and damp. Welcome back to the Isle, and this is our first Scrolls and Scraps episode, a companion podcast to the History of Westeros Valar Realist Project. So having said that, I'd like to welcome any new listeners from the History of Westeros Flick community where the We Readers project is based. It's been really fun talking about all the early chapters of you guys on the app, so uh, hello and welcome. Any other listeners from the History of Westeros family, I'd like to thank you also for visiting, if you haven't before. And of course, if you are a regular Face listener, then hello, how are you? And thank you for joining us on this new little mini-series of mini-casts. Before I get to what we're actually doing here today, I'll just get to some of the housekeeping. For those of you who are regular listeners here at the Isle, again, welcome back. We've had a nice little fortnight break since our last episode, which was part two of the season eight finale. We had a bit of a break for two reasons. One, it's a good idea, just to let the TV sit, just to let the TV show settle a bit whilst we find our way back to the books. And two, we've been very, very busy. Lady Buckley is off working her new job while I am still really cracking away at the Castles book, The Great Castles of Westeros, to get that ready for either June or July like I promised it would be. I'd really like to avoid doing a George and delaying it. If I can, we'll find out. Add all that into having to defend ourselves against a five-month puppy every moment of the day and you can see why we need a break sometimes. Still, having said that, we've got stuff in the works. We've got lots in the pipeline. On top of this Valar We Read This project, which I'll explain for anyone who doesn't know in a moment. We still have our arguments episode where Lady Buckley and I are going to go back through what we argued about the most during season eight and explore exactly how right I was. And at one point, Lady Buckley knew that she was wrong. We're also going to do an episode on The Last Watch, the two hour documentary. At some point, we will get to those when we find some time. Um, even more excitingly, this week I'm recording a new guest episode. Uh, and seeing as the the guest episodes are the backbone of the other faces, obviously that's how we started and it's our main focus. It's always great to have another of those and show off yet yeah, another member of the fandom. And I'm happy to say that this week's guest we're going to record tomorrow is Lauren, better known as Shakes of Thrones on Twitter. So I'm sure all of you are aware of her work and how brilliant she is at merging the worlds of Shakespeare and West and Westeros. So I'm very lucky to be having her on the island. Hopefully that episode will be with you next week or maybe the week after. Let's let's just see how it goes. Like I said, the puppy's only five months old. Give me a break. Uh, on top of that, just one last note for our faces stuff. We're thinking about, it's still up in the air, we're thinking about introducing an Isle of Faces Patreon. Um, I'm up in the air about it. There's good reasons to go for it. There's good reasons to hold off for a bit. I'd love to hear your opinions. You are the listeners, you're the fans, so please do let me know. Give us a tweet, give us an email, whatever you like. I'm not sure how it would work yet with what we could offer tier-wise, but yeah, just let me know what everybody thinks and if there's any interest in the fir- in any interest in it in the first place, because if not, then probably not a good idea. If we can pull it off, we will, because it'll only hope it'll only help the other faces grow, but it's a fan-based podcast and that it shall stay. But anyway, end of housekeeping now. Let's move on. For anyone unaware or slightly confused about what we're actually doing here, History of Westeros, I'm sure most of you know anyway, have started their Valar Rereaders project, which is exactly as it sounds, a rereading of the books right from the beginning, with Aziz and Ashea having a live stream every week 
I'm going through seven chapters a week all the way until the end, which is a little bit off in the future. Like I said, I'm sure most of you are aware already, especially if you flick guys who, like I mentioned, that's kind of where the project is based and everyone's been discussing the chapters so far. Uh, this week would be week three, so it's already three weeks in and it's going really well. I've been really enjoying it because lucky of me, uh, I've been helping Aziz write the notes and been analysing these chapters myself. So that's great fun. The live stream's been great. The discussions on Flick, they've been great fun too. But what are we actually doing here on this Scraps and Scrolls thingamajiggy? Well, what we noticed actually this week, uh, this was the first week I wrote some notes and there was just too many, too many notes. It, was, it would have been basically impossible for Aziz to go through them all without turning it into a, a four-hour live stream, which would probably be a bit unfair be a bit unfair on both Aziz and Ashaya. So we came to the idea of the Isle of Faces stepping up and uh, being coming off the bench, so to speak, handling the scraps, you could say, hence the name. So you can call us the Scrolls and Scraps, you can call us a Reserve Guard, the Little Brother, whatever. We're kind of just a companion picking up the leftovers from the main live stream over at History of Westeros, obviously. So what I'm going to be doing is just going through... I'm just going to be going through all the notes that didn't make it into the stream, either because of time or because it didn't really fit in the topics as these was discussing, whatever it might be. And I should point out that these ones will just be the notes that I made. I don't want to steal anything from Aziz and Ashaya because they can already make their points brilliantly without me chiming in. Now, this may only be the case for these early chapters with uh, so much foreshadowing and setup. Like Aziz said, we're going to have more notes for these ones, which is weird because the actual chapters themselves are way, way shorter. So that's a bit ironic. So perhaps some weeks all the notes will be used and we won't have one of these scrolls and scraps minicasts. And other weeks we will. We'll see how it goes. And as always, send any thoughts and suggestions you might have to make it better. I'm aware you haven't had to put up with any podcasts with just me for a little while. So welcome back to that and my deep voice. I know I sound emotionless. I'm really not, but I know that's what I sound like. Let's kick things off. There's quite a few notes to get through, especially for those first few chapters. Just so everyone's aware, I'll be following essentially the same format as Aziz did on the live stream. I'll go through some some of the main topics where maybe a random note didn't get through or at times there could be a whole topic that we as he's just didn't have time to touch on it might even be something that's occurred to me since who knows let's find out so we begin with Tyrion 1 and already slight adjustment because we were talking on Skype yesterday myself and Aziz and Aziz made a good point that the numbered character chapter titles are going to mean less and less as we go on it's all very well having to remember Tyrion 1 because you just have to remember his first chapter which is much easier but if I just randomly said Tyrion 5 or Tyrion 9 or whatever it could be people have much harder time remembering those straight off the bat you have to work it out a little bit so I made the suggestion maybe we should look at kind of like friends type titles like the one with so this one Tyrion 1 for example would be something like the one with the Lannister luncheon because Tyrion has lunch with the rest of the Lannister family and he also runs into Joffrey beforehand. So hopefully this jogged your memory from Sunday if you watched the live stream or from way further back if you didn't. Either way, let's get to it. So beginning of the chapter, Tyrion wakes up in the library, comes down, he sees Joffrey and we get the slap, which is he's covered. Especially the, the TV aspect of it is quite, I'm sure you've seen it replayed a lot of times because uh, it's quite good to see Joffrey getting slapped. Then again, is it? Is it actually that good to see Joffrey getting slapped because, um, like as he said, he is a child, and I just wanted to expand on that 
a bit because we all know what Joffrey's like. We've all seen the show and read the books for most of us. And I think even at this point, we know he's an arrogant rich kid. So we're not that against seeing him being put in his place and slapped against someone. Okay, we don't really know Tyrion, but it's his chapter, so he's serving as the protagonist in this case. But when you stop and think about it, he is actually being physically abused by someone twice his age. Mm. Which, yeah, different spin on it. And obviously the effect this has on Joffrey, whether it's been happening before, I'm sure we're going to assume this isn't the first slap Joffrey's had, and how that's turned him into what he is, and he's obviously not learning any kind of lesson from Tyrion here, he's just remembering it as, as the Hound warns. Tyrion also isn't learning anything I wanted to put out that even uh, after everything that Tyrion goes through this flaw of his exists right to the end of the narrative that we currently have in his first chapter he's slapping Joffrey to try and teach him a, teach him a lesson and Tyrion at the end of Dance who has gone through a heck of a lot I'm sure you'll agree he slaps Penny the dwarf companion that he finds during Dance so lot of well i don't know can we call it growth for Tyrion? it's it's a a strange old arc it's definitely on the downward trend but some things don't change right from the beginning here where so much is different for everybody and he's still doing it five books later so that's just something to bear in mind that yeah some of Tyrion's worst attributes were here all along even when you know we still see him as good and right and everything else I did point out also that Tywin never gets a mention in this chapter, which is it's just kind of nuts. Uh, I know as he's mentioned that. I think you know, it really does come back to these layers of Lannisters coming back on the strings. That's what Tyrion calls it. You know, dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and that's that's exactly what he's doing with Joffrey now. The slap from Joffrey is coming from the elder generation, as I'm sure slaps came from Tywin which is uh, Tyrion's elder generation and Tywin for his money probably felt slaps of humiliation from Titus his father who was famously taken advantage of by the other Westerlords and that's kind of what forged Tywin into who he is so it's it's just a knockoff trickle down effect um not that I don't think Titus was particularly uh, bad to Tywin so it's a slightly different situation but you can just see Goes from Titus to Tywin, Tywin to Tyrion, Tyrion to Joffrey, and Joffrey's probably getting it, well he is getting it from Robert as well, because we know that Robert has hit him also. So whether we want to admit it or not, that all that contributes to what Joffrey becomes or, or has already become. It does put me in mind of Viserys quite a lot, having the end of season 8 and looking back at these early chapters, I've really been thinking a lot about why... Viserys turned out like he did and why Joffrey turned out like he did and we can't really make excuses for either one of them but there are uh, there are reasons is that there are backgrounds for both of them I think maybe Joffrey slightly worse anyway he did kind of seem like he was going to go that route anyway um Maybe Viserys was too but it does pay to think about why you know George doesn't just write or doesn't tend to write just blatantly evil psycho characters they are they do have backgrounds even the mad king who is you know, supposed to be the embodiment the famous 
mad one, cruel and wicked and everything else. He did have reasons. He wasn't all that bad before the defiance of Duskendale. Maybe there were seeds there, much like Joffrey in his childhood. But all these things contribute, and they're all they're all dancing on the strings, just like Tyrion says. Let's move on, though. Anyway, um, Sandok again was the next topic during the live stream, but I didn't really have anything extra to add to that. So we'll go forward to this Lannister luncheon. Um, mainly, my main thought during all this is that this is the only time we see them all together. This is the only time we really see them as a family. Um, which, I, again, I know, as he's mentioned, I'm sorry, I must apologise, there will be some kind of um, crossover during these notes because, you know, sometimes he has to say half it, not the other. And I can't just say the second half of a sentence because it'll, uh, it'll seem a bit weird. So my apologies, it sounds like you've heard some of these before, but I am trying to add some extra stuff too, if you'll bear with me. Anyway. Lannister luncheon, they're all together. Tyrion says Jamie, Marcella and Tommen, no Joffrey, luckily for us. And yeah, this is the one time really that we get to see them as a family, which as he's mentioned, we don't actually even get for the Starks. But it's weird because there's so much Cersei and Tyrion, especially Cersei and Tyrion interaction, Tyrion and Joffrey, Jamie and Cersei a little bit later on in Feast and uh, some of Storm. So this is a rare treat to get to see the three of them all kind of operating and bouncing off one another because um you know this is this really goes far for George's early message of this not being a black and white series I think he needed this scene to show that this isn't a story about good and evil and these aren't just the um this isn't just the bad family compared to the good family of the Starks and we're certainly going to learn that we've only got these two families really at the moment we're certainly going to meet many more uh, it's not about good and evil. These are families of different members and different relationships. And they've all got fuzzy morals. And this is all translated over in a breakfast scene that lasts about three pages. So it's just a um, a mark of the the early brilliance of George in this series and how he's compacting so much into not a lot. And this scene, this scene is really as close as peace comes for a family who who's eventually going to think of each other all as enemies um not so much Marcella and Tom and they're both still quite sweet and innocent even by the end of dance although it, it could go that way if Marcella gets crowned if that ever goes that way and they could be played off against each other that's definitely been spoken of a lot certainly Tyrion thinks about it but um the adults they definitely all become enemies I don't think we need to rehash Tyrion's feelings for Cersei and how his mindset is at the end of dance and then Jamie and Cersei, they have a bad split. Jamie throws her letter in the fire. So they all become enemies kind of before and after Tywin's death, but especially after. Not that he had a particularly great grasp on his family structure beforehand, but once he goes, it all falls apart and everyone hates each other. And that's even without mentioning Tyrion and Jamie's relationship falling apart, which is the strongest part of this, the only one where they actually both like each other genuinely. And that goes with the whole uh, Taisha thing. So Tyrion, yeah, not fond of the rest of his family, and none of them are really. So that's always fun to think about. Back to this just nice little lunch breakfast scene where they're all happily sat together. And yeah, okay, not actually happily, but on the surface, polite at least, which is more than we get later on. As he's touched on my note about uh, the themes of the outcast in this book and you know, the books onward, and Tyrion kind of being chief of them among those. And especially if he, he kind of rounds out the big three. We've already got John, 
he's the outcast, he's the bastard. We've already got Danny, she's the outcast, obviously, because she's off on the edge of the world being thrown into savage lands. And now we've got Tyrion, who is the, the real embodiment of the outcast, even though he's not really, because he's still part of the main family. But physically, at least, uh, he's the most obvious outcast, I suppose you could say, just to look at him. And those three are often cited as the main characters of the series, especially as we go on, and especially relevant given the theories of three-headed dragons and how people think they're all going to end up united, maybe to defeat the others. So this, again, is George tying early strings around these and saying, look, you should be looking at these three as a group, even though they are at least uh, quite separate. They will be soon enough. To go back to the beginning of the chapter where Tyrion is off in his library having a having a read instead of sleeping, much like many people I'm sure we all know. We talked about how later on the the Winterfell Library burns and probably these books with them. And I think, you know, ancient knowledge lost or knowledge lost is again very reflective of Tyrion and his his whole whole arc, especially in King's Landing. He always knows so much but he struggles to impart that on the world. You know, he knows a lot that could do the small folk uh, a lot of good and does do it saves them but he can't impart that on them because he's the the hated imp he's the hated um demon monkey and you know he it's just i think the burning of those books and the not being able to get across their information it's just a good little reflection of what we're going to have to expect from Tyrion's story and him never being able to quite connect he always he thinks he can and then he either gets betrayed or people die or you know, can never get his point across. So I think we see that early in old books left on shelf and then burnt. Tyrion knows all these things and can do all this good, but he can't because of who he is. And then he gets shipped off to Essos anyway. In terms of the tone of this chapter, I found it very, very different to the other, you know, the Stark. We've mainly got Stark. Well, we have only got Starks and Daenerys so far. And John, He is a Stark. But... You know, all those characters you can fit into the uh, tropes or the kind of characters you would expect in fantasy. You can even, if you really want, slot them into the gods of the seven. You know, we've got a warrior. We can probably assume that John is going to become a warrior. We've got the father in Ned. We've got the mother in Catelyn. We've got the maiden in Daenerys. Okay, no one, no one's stepping up to be the smith or the stranger quite yet. Uh, you know, those are all characters that readers could have guessed, but... Not so much Tyrion. You can't really, you can't really put him into one of those uh, those slots, unfortunately. But I think um, you know Tyrion's view of the world, his being more sceptical and cynical, is really well timed because we must remember that Tyrion one immediately follows Bran two, or in our in our friends type titles, the one way falls out the tower, or the one way gets pushed, I should say. So I think that's also telling. George is trying to tell you, you know, we get our really our first really sceptic POV right after the very event that shouts out, there is stuff to be sceptic about. You should be thinking about this. You should be questioning, uh, which is obviously what Tyrion is already doing in this lunch and he's looking at Cersei and Jamie and trying to put two and two together. On the same vein, on the subject of structure and where to put these chapters, as I'm sure it's always a hard choice for George, um, it makes sense to have a POV from a grotesque that's what Tyrion technically is in this world because it's it's in this chapter in the chapter of a grotesque that we learn Bran will be a cripple 
for the rest of his life and you know cripples bastards and broken things that's that's the grouping so it's a little connection to have that um have that information that announcement made in the pov of someone who really knows what that means uh, jamie can make his comments but he doesn't actually really know yet and Tyrion does and it, it that connection between him and bran that just solidifies things for the the saddle and of stuff like that later on Tyrion and bran the last point for Tyrion one the one of the lannister luncheon um we see him using wit as a defense you know he's he's got a strong wit he's got the sarcasm he's used to these jokes he's had to put up with them for a whole lifetime and as he'll tell or he has told john and he will later you know use it as your armor blah 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 um and through the course of the books we'll see this slowly erode away really you know Tyrion, he can put over the jokes but every man's got a limit and he really he dispenses with the wizard defense thing especially by the end of storm he's just got no use to it because he's tired of defending and he just kind of lets it all overtake him as we know from uh dark Tyrion in dance which is a rather somber note to end Tyrion one on but there we go we've got others to get to Let's go to John 2, which I will name the one with the frosty stepmother. Hmm. The one where John has to say goodbye to Catelyn and Aya and Rob, which are both a bit nicer than the, the first one. Let's see what we've got left for uh, John 2, what we couldn't get to. So uh, I see John's chapter as the first, as the breaking of this first mini act of the book. We've had this little self-contained world, ignoring the Daenerys chapters, this self-contained world within Winterfell, the family life and the family field castle. It's our first real setting, um, you know, if you disregard the prologue and um, the beginning of Bran 1. It's our first real, it's where we associate the beginning of the series with, and it's never ever going to be the same again after this point. So that ties nicely into the leaving childhood behind theme that, almost all the characters come in to play with john sansa Aya, bran and daenerys and you know ned and catelyn also are involved in that leaving of home neither of those two get to go back again and very much the same for john although he might get to go back again still he has to leave that behind he's going to a very very different home which we'll, we'll get to in the uh, following john chapters and as he's mentioned, um, we had a note about how Winterfell is just, it's different, it's gone. And Rob, uh, Rob, John is saying goodbye, yes to Bran, but to his childhood as well. But he's not quite there yet, he's still a child, even if he's um, summoning the strength in this conversation to ward off Catelyn for the time being or stand up to her away. Uh, that kind of melts away when he sees Bran being thin and his eyes open kind of creepy and not looking good so his line of uh like don't don't die brand please uh, that sounds like a child's begging like it does a little bit later when he asks rob um how long it'll be until he visits castle black he's got all the defiance of a man against catelyn but he's still kind of got this bargaining this bargaining thing like a like a child would where he's not he is leaving but he doesn't want to completely leave even though he kind of knows he really is. Speaking of Catelyn, there was talk about how guilt obviously plays into this chapter of her being guilty, um, praying for 
Brands are staying. She thinks it's her fault. She's very similar to the TV scene of when she's talking to um, Rob's wife, Talisa. And um, this is a show only part, I believe, that she's saying about when John was ill as a child and she prayed for him to die and then she felt guilty about that and she thinks that's the reason why all these terrible things have happened to the Starks and that's not in the books, but still, regardless, guilt is a very strong theme throughout Catelyn's arc and it always, or a lot of it at least, always winds back to this situation with Bran. Um, and like she said, we mentioned, it was first off guilt about praying for him to stay and then she has a lot of guilt about leaving which would kind of come to be true because she doesn't get to go back and Bran in her mind anyway dies before she can go back as to the conflict between John and Catelyn historically through John's life um, there was a lot of talk about that in Sunday's live stream there's a lot of talk about that all the time it commonly comes up in all podcasts eventually or whoever you're going to listen to or Twitter or anything but just from my point of view, I think it's clear John has been suffering abuse from Catelyn for all his knife fire neglect. Uh, neglect is a form of the abuse, however you want to frame it. That's the bottom line. Um, and she's kind of got this venom towards him that she obviously doesn't hide. To be fair, I think that speaks to John's the strength of John's connection to his siblings, that he hasn't turned out a much worse kind of problem even with that kind of abuse. And I'm sure part of his inner resolve is partly responsible for that as well but how easily could he have been entirely bitter and looking to pay that back and get, get back at Catelyn for all these years where he's made to feel the outsider he could have turned out very very differently essentially I think John very easily could have been Theon that's even though we don't see much of it in this book that is how Theon ends up feeling very resentful wanting to get back to his other family which is a different situation from John John doesn't have a different family and um, he's never known anything else but you can see it's that which we will see in a second it's the strength of relationship with Rob strength of relationship with Aya that's kept John from going down that road despite all the difficulty now to be fair I do think um, I don't think Catelyn is probably like seeking him out to I mean, she doesn't really speak to him, so it's not like she's searching Winterfell for John so she can say something mean to him. But like we said, it's the neglect, the um, casting aside, the absence of warmth. That is a form of abuse which John has been suffering. So it speaks to John as a person that he hasn't ended up worse because of that. And obviously this, this abuse of John is kind of Catelyn's greatest flaw. She never allows this innocent baby boy into the things she loves most, which is her family, family duty honour. That's the that's obviously Catelyn Tully's ingrained um, coding, if you like. She loves her family so much that she cannot allow any reminder to be in there that there might be a chink in the armour that is you know, her family, her bubble. Because I think in her mind, if she, you know, acknowledges John or talks to John or just acts like it's normal or okay for John to be there, then that's kind of um, giving a pass to Ned's supposed infidelity. And, uh, you know, that's just a bit more than she can bear to think about. She doesn't want this besmirchment on her, uh, on her perfect family. Which I think connects her to Sansa a bit, as we're going to find out in a second. 
Sansa is still young enough to believe in perfect families and heroes of songs and everything's got to be just right. And I don't think Catelyn, she's obviously not like that. She's grown up. She knows the realities of the world, but she still wants to ignore this black mark in John as much as possible. She doesn't want him to ruin it, as Sansa would put it. Again, we'll see in a minute. Just this last point on John and Catelyn, because like I say, it was, it was disgusting enough. But if I remember correctly, I probably have to uh, look this up, but Ned and John were already back at Winterfell, back from the war, when she and Rob made their way up from Riverwind when Rob was a baby. So I think that's got to be, that's got to figure in very largely to for the basis of Catelyn's hatred for John. If you can imagine how she must have felt, bring home a firstborn son and the heir to your new husband and who will some be, someday be the ruler of your new home and very, very important, big part of the war effort was this whole marriage and supposed to marry his brother, but now you've married him, and, but you've given him a son, you've done your duty, family duty, honour. And then you get there in the strange, horrible, cold place to find he's actually already got one. He already has a son. And not only that, but you're allowed to know nothing about it and no explanation other than that he's a bastard, so at least you don't have to worry about the air stuff but still bit of a kick in the teeth so we can see where this comes from for Catelyn it's not just outright um, logic there is logic to it if you want to call it logic I just mentioned a minute ago Bran's physical appearance you know he's wasting uh, thin and twisted and there was some people from the um, flick community in the chat uh, I'd have to look at names forgive me were saying twisted limbs twisted legs made them think of twisted tree roots like we're going to see in the cave so that was a really good catch i didn't think of that um but the main thing that got me creeped out was that his eyes are open the whole time you would you definitely wouldn't like looking i'm not surprised catelyn's so freaked out and not doing well because it'd be bad enough to see him lying there as if he was asleep in this kind of coma thing that he's in but to lie there with his eyes open then it really must not not good and speaking on Bran uh, I think he's still George is still very much in the vibe of Bran being the main character which you know he might turn out to be especially given season 8 but really in this beginning you can see there's a focus there's three chapters in a row where Bran is the focus even if he's not the POV we've got Bran 2 where he has his fall so he's obviously the focus there then Tyrion's chapter the conversation around uh, the conversation with Joffrey and then again at the lunch table that's all about Bran that he's alive but he's in this coma thing and then this chapter John the first part of this chapter is um, about John having to say goodbye and the extent of Bran's injury so we've got three in a row here where Bran is really still uh, you know the center of this kind of circle with everything that's going on after that, he goes to talk to Rob, which is much nicer. Uh, I don't think we've got too much to add to this other than, you know, it's an emotional goodbye, and you can tell they're kind of being teenagery and not admitting it too much because that's not cool. But from then, you know, as he said, that we've only got these one or these two scenes of them together in the present. You know, we'll get memories later on, but we see them kind of being competitive teenage boys when they have a little horse race and now we've got an emotional goodbye so it's quite a big switch quite a big leap from um you know tone to tone 
So there's a lot for the reader to absorb, um, but it's important, very important for the testing of John's vows later at the end of the book, because without um, without this scene, I'm not sure if that comes off as strongly when you know John gets the the news of war in the south and he wants to go go and ride off and help Rob. Without this, we would still, I'm sure we could still glean its meaning, but this just adds another deeper emotional level. And then it gets much more emotional, much, much deeper when we see Aya and John and Needle also. And we discuss that there's, there's vibes, that Aya's connection with Nymeria is stronger, or if not, maybe not stronger, at least faster, it grew faster because this is the first um, hints we're really getting here. Uh, then the other Stark children, in fairness to Rob, we don't have his POV, so we don't know how fast he uh, connected with Greywind, because he obviously does have quite a good connection. Um, but for all we know, Bran's major connection to Summer is obviously through his warging, and that comes from his fall, whereas I doesn't have that, and yet she still's, still is very connected to Nymeria, and later will still have that warging connection. So it just... It, it's something to think about what I might have achieved with Nymeria had they not been separated on the King's Road in the in next week's chapters. You know, she had kept her together and figured out all this extra extracurricular stuff that they can do together, free of the influence of the free-eyed crow, in theory, anyway, as well. Who knows what they could have been doing? Something very similar to Robin Greywind, possibly. Moving down, then we go to um, we go to the opposite feeling of John's meeting with Aya and John's meeting with Catelyn. Obviously, very very different relationships, even though he's talking to mother and daughter. So, on one side, we've got Lady Catelyn, who is the reason he wants to leave Winterfell, and and his sister Aya, the reason that he would want to stay at Winterfell if he was going to stay. And this, again, this is all seeds for later because this is why John remembers Winterfell fondly. He doesn't, although he does obviously think about being a bastard and all these nasty things from Catelyn, he also focuses very strongly on the sibling relationships and um, that drawing him back to Winterfell. This is why he fondly remembers Winterfell, why he fondly remembers Aya, and it just reaffirms Winterfell as a good place for him. Now, that might have happened when comparing to Castle Black anyway, because Castle Black ain't the most fun of places. But still, that connection to Aya and Rob also, and I'm sure the other siblings too, that's what makes it home turf still for John, even if it never felt like home when he was there. And that does transfer over to the reader. You know, it was home for us. It was our first place. It's where we're introduced to many, many characters, if you think about it. Uh, even if it's not their POV introductions, this is where we get to meet a lot of the biggest characters we're going to see, and it just seems like all roads eventually go back to Winterfell. We expect the series to move back there again. So as much as John remembers it fondly and wants to get back there, as does the reader, I'm sure we all missed it very much in um, Storm and Feast, but we didn't get to see it very much. So that difference between Catelyn and Aya is interesting because uh like as he's got to in the live stream you know Sansa and Catelyn they're much more like they're the ladies and Aya like we said earlier is the outcast she wants to be the the fighter and you know go and talk and play outside and whatever else it's just like doing her needlework 
So there's a bit of a distance between Catelyn and Arya. Uh, we don't see scenes of them together, I don't think I'd have to look. And we don't get much of them thinking on each other, not as much anyway. Catelyn, to be fair to Catelyn, Catelyn probably thinks that Arya is dead, so she focuses on trying to keep Sansa alive. And Arya, for her money, she does think of her mother, but it comes much later. And obviously in Storm, after the Red Wedding, we have Arya really connecting with her mother because she knows about her death and is through Nymeria, say, well, not saves Catelyn, but brings her body out of the river. And you can see kind of those two coming back together closer than we ever saw them. So this is all important for much later on. And like I just said, Catelyn would be the reason John would want to leave, always the reason he wants to come back. And considering that coming back presents itself as a viable option in dance when, Stam when Stannis comes a knock in, I don't think it's coincidence that that's also when Melisandre tells him about um, what he thinks is Aya in her vision, because that's the one thing that can distract John from his duty. I don't think, you know, Winterfell, well, Winterfell wasn't enough on its own, even with those happy memories of seeing it as um, home turf, whatever. That's not enough to shirk duty for John. Aya is, and we can see, we can go all the way back, scroll all the way back, and find why that is in this chapter. Okay, Daenerys. There's a lot of notes for Daenerys, which I think Aziz got to most of them, but there was still that was probably the biggest, the biggest chunk. Very interesting this chapter overall. If we're going to look at it from beginning to end. Oh, I didn't give it a friend's name, did I? So what's this? Daenerys two? Is that right? Is it three? No, it's Daenerys two. <laughs> what should we call this one? We could give it a few names. We'll call it the one with the Dothraki wedding. We'll stay on the safe side. But if we're gonna look at this whole whole chapter from beginning to end, I see it as transitioning from large to small, both in the physical sense and the more um hypothetical atmosphere. Atmospherical, atmosphere, atmospherical sense. We go from a huge crowd and noises and dance and gifts and all these new people popping up all over the place to a quiet space for two people in the middle of the night. That's the, obviously the physical. Daenerys is going, seeing two extremes here: the big, um, big crowd and all the noises and stuff. She's not probably not all that used to. She has been to a lot of cities, true, but she's normally just with Viserys. And then she gets taken off to what I imagine what felt like the loneliest place on earth. Just her and Drogo under the stars, very, very different. More overall sense, we go from the grand plans. Now, obviously, that's not set up front, but we know, having read forwards and knowing what Varys and Illyro are up to, we go from grand plans to invasions and um, reclaiming thrones and schemes. All these grand plans of a thousand different plots melded together with a thousand different people playing small roles we go from all that down to just two people one-on-one -on -one, becoming intimate with one another so it's complete complete opposites presented in one chapter from beginning to start it's very very interesting we're already down to uh, the miscellaneous part of this chapter as he's got to uh, most of the, the notes here but Talking about the books, we had a lot of book talk. I think George was trying to uh, hit us over the head that you know books are important in this world, and ours. 
I think it's significant that Jorah specifically gives Daenerys the books about Westeros. Um, she has that nice quote about how much it means to her, even though I don't think we actually uh, get a follow-up of her reading any, which is a shame. But this is the beginning of how important Jorah is to Daenerys, obviously. he's his, He is her entire connection to the continent she wants to conquer. Remember that she's never been there. She's doesn't know anything really about current current day Westeros and even past Westeros she's basing off Viserys, which is not your the best bet for getting a clear picture of things. So Jaw is it, really. He's her her looking glass into this faraway land that is her entire focus. It's her whole life. So Jorah is incredibly critical to that, at least until he has to go away and Sir Barry turns up. But he is that entire connection, and that starts right here. He's This is his first act towards Daenerys, giving her information about Westeros. And that's how he'll continue, for a little while at least. There's a lot of talk, um, both in the live stream and elsewhere, about these um, the line about Dothraki putting on rich fabrics and wearing perfume visiting the three cities and it's kind of a head scratcher because uh, you know if if you hadn't read the books and I said that to you you'd probably look at me like I, like I was incorrect because we don't really ever hear anything about that again we don't hear anyone referencing the Dothraki dressing stylishly or even having mances um, we definitely don't see any of it while we are still with the Dothraki through Daenerys and although they don't really have time to explore this greatly it's another um, common part of these kids growing up in seeing one thing and then seeing what is actually happening behind the door underneath so to speak because Daenerys sees the palace and she sees the fabrics and the perfumes and then very quickly that's followed by the wedding with the murders and the public sex and it continues just continues that theme of you know every character every place there's always another layer which Pretty much all our characters are going to discover at various speeds. It's just a weird note that um, the manses and the, the fabrics, I don't know if George just kind of forgot about that, but it is, it's interesting because this the last real attempt to paint the Dothraki as anything other than like the ravaging hordes, even though, you know, Eerie and uh, the Blood Riders, they stick with Daenerys, we're not really given any more insight once we leave um rack or leave well leave wherever drogo died so it's just interesting but maybe that is to come in winds to be fair because you know daenerys seems to be going back there so maybe we're just going to get a bit of more window into dothraki culture maybe not maybe there just isn't time for that um, or maybe george just doesn't want to complicate something that's been so solid since the uh, early early chapters maybe maybe not there's a lot of quotes about feeling alone in this chapter, which as East did touch on. Um, it says, she never felt so alone as she did in that massive horde. It says she was only 13 and all alone. Well, this chapter is a gateway to that loneliness ending for a little while. She, she's going to get back to that loneliness, but it's a bit different afterwards. She's about to become part of a vast Kalasar, part of a tribe that shares pretty much everything together, at least experience-wise, maybe not their, their tangible items so much, but they're a pretty open bunch so she's going from 
living with one person and obviously she feels quite detached from him so it's a very lonely existence to living with all these people that share everything together and everything's open and you're surrounded so and although in this first instance at the wedding she does feel alone in the crowd that old you know trope of being alone in a crowd um she will soon be integrated into them and she won't feel alone. She'll feel empowered and strong because she's got her blood riders and her handmaidens. She's the Khaleesi. She has the Dothraki around them. And even afterwards, even after many of them leave her with Drogo's death, she that feeling of loneliness doesn't really return until she's in Marina and starts going sideways that way. Then she gets to be lonely again. But this first first chapter is her her stepping through the gateway from loneliness and powerlessness, this, this, to something else and I think that ties very nicely into the fact that this is her first separation from Viserys I'm sure she can put two and two together here that she feels better and less alone away from Viserys not too hard to figure out and this is also um, the first instance the first instance of something that Daenerys is going to have to do several times and that's meeting a new culture and getting used to their way of doing things that's one of her strengths by the end of it all is that she's so adept at meeting people and um getting used to customs and how to address different cultures and classes blah 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 and obviously the people around her are a very large part of that so jorah and Masande and more and more people as we go on especially once she get from gets to marine but if you think about it so this is just the first one but she has to do it with the carthine she has to do it with the estapori she has to do it with the miranese and eventually she's gonna have to do it with the westerosi because again she's got all that history there and she might have sir joran she might have sir barriston and soon she might have even more westerosi people there but it's still a foreign land to her so she's got to get used to all that after being in very very different places and even even like something like astapor or young guy where she didn't exactly hung around, hang around. Uh, it's still a, a skill that not everyone would be so adept at. So it's one of Daenerys' strengths, and this is her learning that particular weapon for her. Okay, Daenerys, that's that. So at this point on Sunday was where Aziz reached his mid-roll, so we will follow suit and do the same thing. For those who aren't regular listeners to the faces, whenever we have a guest on our midway point, we like to play Podrick's People and give them a chance to uh, just give a quick shout-out or shine a quick light on someone from the fandom who's caught their eye that week or that month or whatever it may be. Now, we don't have a guest today, it's just me, so I'm going to take a turn at doing it. And I'm going to bring you two Podrick's Peoples. And the first is Naomi Makes Art on Twitter, that is, at Naomi Makes Art. And this week, uh, I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before, she uh, posted uh, some artwork of Egg on the Fifth, Egg, grown-up Egg, that is, and his lovely wife, Betha, and their children, their five children. Uh, Yeah, five. And it's brilliant artwork, it's in a kind of uh, cartoony style i don't know the lingo i apologize naomi if you're listening but it is amazing you should really go and have a look at it that's naomi makes art on twitter it looks like um like you're about to play a game on the switch nintendo switch that's what it looks like it looks like these characters are about to move and you're about to play a game of them it, it looks amazing incredible incredible stuff so please please go and take a look at that 
second shout out goes to the famous Joe Magician, which I'm sure you all know from Mason Monthly and from Twitter. He's been asking some good questions on Twitter recently. Um, first, he asked for everyone's kind of um, hottest take, if you like, however you, want, however you want to phrase that. He did a better job than I did. Um, and he also put up a good poll the other day about just how awful Tyrion's murder of Shay was, which did throw up some in, uh, well, we will say interesting, some incorrect responses, but a lot of good discussion also. So um, please go and check out. He always puts up these kind of good questions. And there's more good stuff on his, on his Twitter feed anyway. Having said that, he has started talking a lot about Con of Thrones, which I am unable to attend. So I've changed some minds. Please shun Joe Magician. Do not like any of his tweets. Never talk of him again. He's being mean to me. Okay, back to the action. We're in. We'll go a bit quicker through these through these chapters there's not nearly as much that um aziz wasn't able to get to first is eddard 2 or the one with the joyride we'll call it robert and ned uh, going on a bit well robert goes on the joyride ned gets taken on one it's more succinct more true uh and many things about this chapter but i think probably one of the one of the ones we're going to see repeated the most is Ned getting stressed out and then thinking of Lyanna or thinking of this promise me Ned you know a focus of the fandom still um, and it will be for a while yet I imagine but uh, the thought I had when rereading this was again obviously that you know, this is the first of many stressful times for Ned to come and uh, especially safety of children especially when we get to him being arrested and you know, he has his whole would I trade my um trade my honour for a few more years and Varys reminds him of his daughters or daughter specifically, I can't remember the wording. And you know, yeah, safety of children again. Nothing new to say that Ned is horribly afflicted with memories of dead children at all. Especially being in the South again, you know, it just all comes rushing back. With that in mind, it's an odd thing to say, but maybe it was a mercy that Ned died when he did, given what happens in the Riverlands and to his children. I'm just thinking, I wonder if there's an alternative, alternative timeline where, I don't know, he either gets kept in the Black Cells or even if he gets sent to the Wall, but everything else happened as it did. Can you just imagine if he had to live with the knowledge of Sansa being Joffrey's prisoner and if he could, well, not they would, but if he did know about what I had to go through and even forgetting that and obviously not mentioning Rob dying and everything that's going to happen to Bran and Rickon don't forget Rickon um, but even forgetting his own children if he knew about all the atrocities that are going to happen across the Riverlands and then spreading out what's to come with Euron and everybody else um, maybe it is a mercy that Ned went where he did because at least he didn't have to put up with that we noted that uh, Robert rages like a storm in this chapter while Ned is quiet and reserved. And that's them reflecting their own family histories. Robert comes from the Storm Kings. He comes from Storm's End. He's supposed to rage and um, rage and thrash and make a lot of noise. Whereas Ned comes from the quiet diables that kind of stare you out. He's more stoic. They're representing their family traits 
right on show for us here. We get from Robert the first of his, in quotes, offhand comments. They're not really offhand, but he's saying, you know, he's kind of mentioning, oh, wouldn't it be good to leave them all behind? Oh, wouldn't it be good to become something else and go off to the disputed lands and be the sellsword king or whatever it is, he says. Um, and it's just giving us a real clear window. A lot of these early chapters, Ned chapters are, but... Um, I think this is maybe the first one where it's really laid out obvious to us what's going on in Robert's soul when he talks, when he's so bitter about wanting Liana and not a crown and um, wanting to burn the wheelhouse and ride away from it all. It's really very clear to us and Ned probably is realising more so what's happening. This is not a happy man, it's not a happy chappy even though you know he's the king the most powerful man so and that sets a precedent in itself we know what's going to happen to all these kings even though being king is technically the end goal of the game of thrones that everyone is playing and i think you know that's one of the ironic points of the series that it's not very fun or um very long lasting often we we get that kind of confirmed where um or we can we can see it as confirmed when Ned's final thought we mentioned as he's read this out where is um a man could not always be where he belonged though. And in my mind, I think there's no doubt Robert probably thinks the same thing, but in the opposite way. He probably believes he belongs out here in the in the wild, in the barrowlands, in the saddle, and um you know, he belongs free, riding free of his warhammer, but he's tied back to his uncomfortable his horrible iron chair. Moving down then, we, so uh, there's a little bit about Jorah in this episode, Jorah Mormon, and specifically Ned's kind of interaction or near interaction with him. Uh, I think, as he's got to a different point in this, but I think George includes Ned's thoughts on Jorah specifically here to reflect Ned. It's I think it's a conversation to show that Ned isn't like some softy because we obviously have him here saying no don't uh, kill the children and which not not fair <laughs> to call him a softie for not wanting to call children and not wanting to kill children but he wants to show that ned is actually politically astute he is actually good at ruling which we don't really get um we don't really get evidence of in game of friends it all comes after ned's dead when the north starts to fall apart and you realize what a good job ned was doing of holding this place together and how respected he is by the you know the hill tribes and everyone else and you know the ned and all that um so i think it's you know george puts this in specifically to show ned knows how to rule his own country and he knows the price of ruling and he knows um how to do the job which we did get we already know from his beheading of um garrod in in the brand chapter I think this is just reaffirming that Ned does know what he's doing. And it also highlights just how the murder of children is a, is a moral canyon that Ned cannot cross, whatever whatever the weather. It goes against, you know, a lot of people like to say that Ned was out of his depth, he couldn't do politics, blah, blah, blah. But like I say, those later, later chapters and the later books show you Ned knew what he was doing. And I think George is just trying to give us a hint. 
that um, that quick reference to Jamie being named Warden of the East. That was a very odd. I always forget about that. Um, a little kind of subplot that didn't really become a subplot. It's weird because it just seems like a poor idea from any angle. Where, however you think of it, it would just throw Westeros into all sorts of um, political upheaval, which it, it does end up in anyway. So, you know, maybe Robert is just going to cut a corner and get to it quicker. But, yeah, I mean, can you imagine Jamie being Warden of the East? Jamie being named Warden of the East? No one's going to react well to that other than the Lannisters, which does show how, how deep the Lannister claws are in Robert. Because, you know, you've got this favouritism, nepotism type vibe, which happens all over the place, but the Lannisters and Cersei's we'll see get especially good at it. And that just would have been a, a terrible idea all around, I think we all agree. Moving to Tyrion 2, we're getting closer to the end. And uh, So this is the one on the road for Tyrion. Tyrion and Jon... They're traveling through the wild north and they have a bit of a discussion about what the um what the deal actually is with the night's watch i don't think we have very much to go through at all in this one let's just have a quick look i think the main thing i think pretty much the only thing i have to add about this chapter actually is it's um it seems quite similar to daenerys's journey at the moment where so john is off now he's on his way to this new life and this new world and um, he's got there, and the, the curtain's been pulled back. He meets Yorin and the not-so-lovely recruits that he's joining, and Tyrion kind of points out, I guess what, it's not what you thought it was. And although it's not direct comparison right now for Daenerys, it is similar in that you see one thing, you find another. Same with Sansa. She sees one thing, get into King's Landing, all land of wonders, all these balls and lovely dresses and all these nice knights in shining armor blah 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 and then pull back the curtain and it's something else and john's not even there yet so that's just a bit of a hammer over the head for him much like her you know he put the hammer in stir's head in the show let's move on to catelyn three which is the one what should we call this one the one where summer eats someone's throat the one where bran nearly gets murdered by the cat's ball which is obviously a big a big discussion about um, where George was really going with this and if he got a bit lost along the way certainly it seems so it doesn't sit so well with um, many fans fair enough I think yeah I think Aziz actually got to my favourite part of this which was the um, the mutual finger injuries for John and Catelyn and how it's just, it's just good that they they are emotionally as emotionally distant as you can get and this, they've got that similarity connecting them um he also as he's mentioned my kind of jumping the shark ideas about why they refer to hodor as um they say he's been acting queer and in no way do i think this is actually what's going on but in my own mind i like to connect the dots and think well maybe if they ever put some of that weird time travel stuff that they had in the show where bran like goes back and messes with hodor and it's all a bit confusing if any of that ever filters through, maybe that's what's happening here. Because at this moment, where um, where Brand's still asleep, as we're going to find out next week, his head is full of uh, you know the three-eyed, three-eyed crow stuff, and it's going all weird. So if it maybe that's why, maybe this is a point in time that Brand has to come back to. He has to mess with Hodor, blah blah blah. 
I don't think that's true at all, but it's just, you know, you see these things and you start connecting. Also, a big part, like a side part of this chapter, uh, again, as we mentioned, was you could really see Rob starting to grow up. Uh, we saw it in John's chapter already. We see even more in Catelyn. He's taking charge. He's doing the accounts of Lewin. Um, blah, blah, blah. He goes off to sort the fire out, etc., etc. Uh, as he's got to my main point for that about um, about Catelyn has a, a big influence on that. But again, that's setting um, the precedent for the story because she, without Ned, Ned's gone. So Catelyn has to pick up the pick up the mantle of main teacher for Rob. He's going to have all these different men around him. He's going to have his uncle Edmure. He's going to have his great uncle Brendan. Uh, you know, you've got Great John. You've got Rickard. You've got Roos. You've got all these different people. So even before Jane comes along and starts uh, whispering in his ear as well, Catelyn's going to have to be uh, in charge of that and really showing Rob what to do. And you can see it here where she's asking him, well, what do you think is, is Rob? And you know, just trying to tease things out and trying to get his mind working a bit. And we just have a few more signs of Rob making the steps towards manhood. You know, Roderick Cassell thinks now that now is the time for a steel sword etc and obviously this is a really emotional emotionally challenging chapter to read Callan's in such a such a state of sleep and grief and all this stuff that's going on and like we said earlier with um, Daenerys she go from one extreme to the other in terms of her you know being with a lot of people and um and being alone we get the same thing here in Cat's chapter, where it goes from grief-stricken, really is almost comatose, can't do anything, to at the end it's the complete opposite. It's I am Catelyn Tully, family duty, family duty, honor. Off we go. But the emotional toll at the beginning really sets a precedent for the rest of Catelyn's story. She's not really gonna, even though she feels much better by the end of the chapter, it certainly isn't the end of her emotional toil she's going to be pummeled more and more uh, with news that it's just one blow after the other it's, all of them are going to want to send her back to this frenzied grief-stricken state that we, we were introduced to at the beginning of the chapter and she really only resists probably by the memory of what nearly happened to Bran because of it and you know she has this guilt again like we said previously this guilt of being a failure as a, as a lady, as a mother, and she has to go into full Tully duty mode, which she's hit on, definitely. I, I just kind of wanted to double down on, you know, this. This is just what happens to Catelyn from now on. She leaves, and okay, she does have some, well, are we going to call them successes? You know, not not everything is a complete failure for Catelyn, but emotionally, emotionally almost everything is. She doesn't really get good news. I mean, uh, yeah, Rob survives several battles and, you know, it could be worse. But from here till the Red Wedding, it's not a lot of highs. So it's really George uh, saying, you know, this is the kind of story we're going to have. And personally, this is more just a details thing, but I always thought the decision to go to King's Landing herself was in error a bit. Um, I can see how she, how she got there, but... I think maybe just sending Sir Roderick might have been best. I think if she can trust him with the information, she's going to trust him with the information to Ned. Maybe it was more a question of who's Ned going to believe. Um, 
and you know the stakes are high so i can definitely see why she's trust entrusting it to herself but i, I would have thought that the risk in just getting to king's landing as two people alone like just her and one old knight maybe that is a sign another sign actually i've only just thought of this of how you know just how strong strong a grip ned had on the north that Catelyn can feel safe traveling because i don't think in the south people would ever feel that safe but ned ned's north that's a good name maybe we should have called the podcast that ned's north i think ned's north was so safe and stable that um you know two people thinking about traveling as two people wasn't as much of an issue as it is obviously going to be in the future um a final note here on on Catelyn 3 was um there's a little note in there about um you know rob wants to open the window because he thinks the direwolf's howling is going to heal bran and by the end of the chapter Catelyn's pretty on board obviously with summer staying with bran and maybe that has something to do with bran uh waking and i just wonder maybe we're going to see that come back with john and ghost you know maybe ghost is kept away from john's quote-unquote corpse and uh, maybe when it gets close again we have john awakening or maybe we get ghosts first howl uh that all kind of flies in the face of john walking into ghosts which is a fairly common theory we're all guessing at this point we, we will find out it's uh interesting to think about right the last one sansa one i'm pretty sure even as i scroll down here that um there's these pretty much got to all my notes on this but let's just double check anyway uh we have to think of a name as well the one the one where joffrey cries the one the one of the butcher's boy no that's a bit grim we'll just call it um the one with sansa's big day out anyway we, we know what happens sansa um is supposed to go to the wheelhouse of cersei instead she goes on mega date with joffrey and it all goes terribly wrong i'm sure we all remember um, Aziz mentioned my note here about you know the the little lick from Lady that makes Sansa smile and oh there's a lot of just kind of you know just single sentences short sentences that throw up this image of a little girl and you know what is basically her pet dog just being really really cute and knowing what's going to happen whoa that puts a toll on them. Um, I'm reading this chapter it really does I didn't want to keep reading I know what's coming next week and it really does um ooh, yeah uh on Io I said uh as he's mentioned this I said that this chapter is very heavily about Io like that John chapter earlier we're getting a lot of Io in other people's chapters so far um and one of the things she says is about rubbing mud onto um she she gets like sores from a flower or something that I missed. Can't remember off the top of my head, but she rubs mud on it, and it just makes me laugh. Oh, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with rubbing mud onto a wound, is there, Drogo? No, no, nothing bad happens in this book from rubbing mud on stuff. Nope. And also, Sansa gets uh, frustrated about you know, I goes off, gets all muddy, and talks to people and then she comes back and Sansa expects her to get told off for this because it's the worst thing someone can do and Ned just hugs her and uh, Sansa doesn't really get it and I think 
we can now kind of establish that Ned's he's seeing Liana in Aya, um, and you know, especially there's a lot of things about flowers that connects to Liana, and in this case, Aya was bringing back flowers, so there's a little bridge being made, um, and yeah, it's just another just another little hint by George in this early early going. It's a lot of stuff. That's all before it, it all goes wrong, obviously. Doing the Sansa and Aya, they find uh, sorry, Sansa and Joffrey, they find Aya and Micah uh, click clacking the swords, and it all goes terribly wrong because Joffrey, slap warranted or unwarranted, is a bit of a well, not a bit of he's just a massive. I won't say it, he's just horrible to everyone. Um, and we have that, you know, Sansa shouts at the shouts at all of them to to stop ruining it. They're ruining the good day, the nice, the picture perfect day. I think that really shows where she is kind of in her growth, in her reality check. Um, yeah, before uh, this thing with Joffrey happened, she had the perfect day planned in the wheelhouse of Cersei and Marcella, and she was worried that something external was going to come and ruin it. In this case, it was Aya. She was worried Aya would come into her perfect day and ruin it. And then um, she beats that. She gets an even better day with Joffrey. And then again, external forces. It's Aya and, and Micah, I guess, again, come in to ruin it. And, um, you know, they turn Joffrey bad, in Sansa's opinion. <clears throat> and it ruins this, this little bubble that she lives in, wanting nice laid-out plans with nice laid-out results. The idea, and, and that's probably what rubs up the wrong way about Aya, because Sansa wants it all to be heavily formatted and, um, you know, very strict to the, the songs and tales she knows. Whereas Aya is messy and wants to go out doing a different thing every day, and it's not it's not neat, it's not nice. So definitely, you know, they they clash that way. And obviously, we know what's going to happen to Sansa's perfect little bubble. It's going to be burst. This is just the first instance of that. Speaking of Aya going off and uh, you know talking to. I uh, can't remember who it is, but Sansa almost, you can kind of see Sansa looking down her nose when she's thinking this, thinking, oh, she's talking to the, whoever it was, I, I'm not going to look it up now, but, you know, the butcher's boy and the uh, footman and whoever else it is, all the the people who are just kind of there to Sansa at the moment, it's kind of the background, you're not supposed to talk to them, but uh, Aya does, and it's a reflection of, you know, she's so much more like Ned than she is Catelyn. That's how Ned rules. He goes and talks to your men and those quote unquote beneath you if you want their loyalty. Rob shows us that later on. He knows that's how you inspire loyalty and inspire command. And it's also about being honest. Aya is nothing if not honest. Um, whereas again, Sansa still on the side of everything being perfect and right. And you know, that's not that's not a knock against Sansa. She there's no reason she shouldn't shouldn't think that at this point she's a 13 year old princess essentially um so i mean i think george did it intentionally that way to show how princesses actually are and not so much the kind of as we would normally see them in fairy tales and while that this that's kind of small microcosm example it's going to have a big payoff later because i is going to spend her journey kind of down with the again quote-unquote beneath people 
and Sansa's going to see how her formatted fairy tales actually exist and it's not going to be very pretty for either of them and I think that is about that everybody that's the first scrolls and scraps or reserve guard or maybe I'll just scrap the whole thing call call the podcast Ned's North I think that's a really good name I'm gonna have to save that for something so yeah there we go that's just some spillover some extra notes for you from these uh, these chapters and like I said earlier we will see if we require one next week maybe all the notes get used up maybe maybe there's even more who knows we'll, we will see and I'll obviously let you know all the all the props and thanks in the world to Aziz and Ashea for setting this up in the first place and I can't imagine you, any of you are listening to this if you haven't already listened to the uh, live stream but if you haven't definitely definitely go to that one first they uh, they deserve the credit and they put the, the hard work in have a look at the flip community and all their facebook group and everything says really good stuff in there some really good discussion and i hope you will join us again next time on top of later this week for our guest appearance very which we're looking forward to good to be back on the other faces good to have you all back Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.